0: Thank you, Dan. Hey, church. How's it going? Good morning. Hey, I hope you have your Bibles with uh, you, and uh, if you don't, you can grab one in the pew back in, uh, in front of you. And turn with me to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is the very last book in your Old Testament, and uh, in my Bible, it's page 779, as we continue to work through uh, the book of Malachi in our sermon series, Half-Hearted. Uh, today, in part seven of the book of Malachi, we see God pleading with his people Admonishing them to return to him, to restore their relationship with him by turning away from sin and turning back to him. Again, Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. If you would pray with me briefly, and then we'll dive right in. Father, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do, that your word would be spoken clearly, um, that you would guard and protect my lips, that I might say that which is accurate and faithful to your word, and Father, I pray for my own heart and for the hearts of your born-again people, those who name the name of Christ, that we would be willing and uh, open to hear from you through your word uh, as you speak into our hearts and to our lives, as you call us um, in, in whatever area of sin and rebellion we may find ourselves in. you. Uh, beg and plead and command us to return to you so that you might return to us and restore our relationship with you and pour out your blessings of covenant upon us. And so speak through me, I pray, in the name of Jesus and God's people said together. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning uh, with a few stories that I found uh, uh, off the internet about uh, thieves, robbers, criminals, uh, that let's just say uh, were lacking mental capacity. In fact, I think the website said stupid robber stories. So I'd like to begin with a few dumb robber stories. Number one, a story is told, true story by the way, all of them, about a man who entered into a drugstore. He entered into the drugstore, he pulled a gun, and he announced that he was robbing the drugstore. He then proceeded to pull a hefty bag uh, over his face as a mask to protect his identity. Only he realized that he had forgotten to cut eye holes in the mask, and he was uh, uh, taken away. Number two, uh, two men uh, once tried to pull off the front of a cash machine, an an ATM, right? And what they did uh, is they tried to do that by running a chain uh, from the machine to the bumper of their pickup truck. Well, as the story goes, instead of pulling the front panel off the machine, uh, they actually pulled the bumper off of their truck. It didn't go so well, so they got scared, of course. They were spoofed a little bit, and so they left the scene and they drove home. However, they left with the chain still attached to the machine, with the bumper still attached to the chain, with the vehicle's license plate still attached to the bumper. And they were, of course, apprehended uh, in that way. Third story, uh, moments after robbing a bank, a man jumped into a car, his getaway car, shouting, get away before the cops come. Of course, he failed to notice that the car that he was jumping into uh, was actually not his getaway car, but was a police car. And uh, he was apprehended immediately and uh, sent off to jail. Um, so if you're ever thinking about robbing a bank or a drugstore, right, don't, don't do any of, these, any of these things. In fact, it's a good idea not to do it all together. However, these uh, stupid robber stories, right, are funny, and they kind of thought that they could get away with stealing, with thievery, right? Well, amazingly enough, God's people in Malachi's day thought that they could also get away with stealing, with robbery. However, their robbery was not stealing from a bank or an ATM or a a, a drugstore. No, they were robbing... God himself. In response to the people's covenant unfaithfulness, God cries out to his people in this section, return to me so that I can return to you. Well, let's begin in your Bible or on the screen behind me in verse 6 with a claim. That is, this dispute, much like many of the other disputes in the book of Malachi, it begins with a claim by God, a statement by God about himself. And notice the claim that God makes about himself to begin this dispute in verse 6. He says this, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So the dispute begins with a claim by God about his character, about his unchanging nature, And I think what God is getting at here is that he is trying to communicate to his covenant people, both then and today, that he is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to the promises that he makes to his covenant people. Now, there is a specific promise that God made to his old covenant people, the the nation of Israel, that I think he is referring to here. First of all, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 21. Notice the promise that God makes to his covenant people there. It reads this way, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you. Notice the language, right? He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by an oath. So back in Deuteronomy, when God was making his covenant with his old covenant people, he said in the context that they would go astray, that they would disobey him. He promised that he would not leave them, that he would not forsake them, that he would not destroy them, and he wouldn't forget his covenant promises to them, though they may forget the covenant promises they made to him. Now, this promise by God is reiterated many years later in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 30, verse 11, reads this way. God tells his covenant people again. He says, I am with you, and I will save you, declares the Lord. Now, this is in the midst of their exile. And he promises, I'm with you. I will save you, declares the Lord. Though I will completely, notice the language, destroy all the nations among whom I scatter you. I will not completely destroy you. And so when God opens this dispute in verse 6 and he says, I am the Lord and I do not change so that you, O descendants of Jacob, so that you are not destroyed. God's people should have remembered their Bible. And they would have remembered that God is saying, in spite of our unfaithfulness, he will be faithful to us. See, he reminds them that a promise is only as good as the one making it. We know that, right? Many people make promises in this world, but a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And notice the character, the nature of God who makes this promise to them. And he makes similar promises to us. I, the Lord, do not change. He is unchanging, unwavering, Faithful, His promises are true. The other day, it was probably several weeks ago now, uh, I was having a conversation with my son, Asher, the oldest. And I don't exactly remember uh, how it went, but it was in the evening time, and he wanted uh, me to do something with him, and it was too late. And so I said something to the effect of, okay, Asher, it's too late to play baseball. Let's just say he was playing baseball. And I said, it's too late to play baseball, uh, but tomorrow after, after work, when I get home, I promise probably shouldn't have said that. I promise when I get home, there will be time to play baseball. Well, as you know, parents, sometimes things happen and something came up. And so when it came time for me to be home from work after school, um, I, I couldn't make it. I wasn't there. Something came up. I had to attend to somebody, to something, and, uh, and I couldn't make it. And I got home, and uh, do you know what he said? He said, Dad, you promised And I tried to explain to him that, yes, I did promise, and yes, I was so sorry, but things happen, things change, and I had pastoral responsibilities. Well, friends, thankfully, God doesn't do that to us, right? He doesn't make promises to us, and they say, well, sorry, son, sorry, daughter, something happened, and I had to do this or that. No, his promises to us are true. Which leads us to our first lesson out of Malachi today. It's simply this, God never abandons his people. He never abandons his people. See, just as God promised Israel and reiterates that promise here in Malachi chapter 3, that he would never abandon them. He would never completely destroy them despite their covenant unfaithfulness. See, God makes promises to us too. His new covenant people, the church of Jesus Christ, very similar promises that he, though we sin and rebel against him, though we may be faithless in our relationship to him, that our relationship to him is eternally secure. We sang songs about that this morning, right? I think of a couple passages that should be on the screen behind me. One of my favorite passages that should give us rest and hope as Christians is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 there Paul writes these encouraging words. He says, if we, speaking of born-again Christians, the church, if we are faithless, well, how will God respond to us? If we are faithless. Church, you ever been faithless before? I know I have. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen? That's when you say amen. Amen? Very good. He remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. I think of the promise of Jesus in John chapter 20. Wonderful words, verses 28 and 29. He says, I give them eternal life, speaking of Christians, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He explains himself, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. See, God, friends, God never abandons his people. He doesn't abandon his old covenant people, Israel. And he doesn't abandon his church when we are faithless, when we are wayward, when we are not faithful to our end of the covenant bargain. And we're going to see shortly that Israel was not faithful to their end of the bargain. Well, in contrast to God's faithfulness that we see portrayed in verse 6, God charges his people in verse 7 with unfaithfulness. Notice the first charge at the very beginning of verse 7. Here God says that they are currently and that they always have been a faithless, rebellious people that have turned away from their relationship with him through disobedience. Notice verse 7. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Boy, God is giving it to his people. He's saying not only are you unfaithful to me now, You always have been unfaithful to me. Look at your history, O Israel. You have always turned away. He makes it very clear in no uncertain terms that they are the cause of the strained relationship, right? That they are the ones that have turned away. God uses very relational terms here, this this term term in Hebrew, to turn away. It's the idea of, of being in a relationship with someone, and you turn your back on them. And you walk away. And that's what God's people have done. They turned their backs on God and they walked away from Him by being unfaithful to their covenant to Him, which leads us to our second lesson. It shows us a little bit about the nature of sin. See, sin involves a turning away from God as a Christian a turning away from God. Yes, certainly sin is the idea of missing the mark, of of not meeting God's holy and righteous standards, of, of breaking a rule, so to speak. Yes, that is what sin is, but it's not only that. That's not all that sin is, because sin is in the context, if we're Christians, in a relationship to a holy God, right? It's not just breaking a rule, it's breaking a relationship, right? It's not just disobeying God, it's disconnecting from God. It's turning our back on our Heavenly Father. See, uh, when my sister was, was young, she's the younger of, of the two, and when she was a teenager, um, though I was the perfect teenager, wink, wink, right? I thought I was, Uh, though I was the better of the two as a teenager. Let's put it that way. My sister was kind of the, well, she was a little more difficult, and she will admit that. And so there was oftentimes that my sister would disobey mom and dad, and they would get in spats, and she wouldn't, you know, she would break the rules. Let's put it that way. And I remember mom uh, speaking about those days in retrospect, and she made a comment something like this. Something to the effect of, it's not so much that she was disobeying us. Yes, that was bad. But it was, she was breaking our trust, right? She was breaking the relationship, the closeness that I, that I had with her. And I remember that, speaking, uh, my mom speaking about the sin of my sister in relational terms. And it, it's true with our relationship with God. So friends, we need not see our sin and our rebellion uh, just, as, um, just as breaking divine rules. But it's breaking a divine heart, Right? So how does God respond when his people are wayward? How does God respond when his people, both old and new, turn their back on him in disobedience and walk away? What does God do? Well, we see God's response in verse 7, as he cries out to his wayward people. He says this, Return to me, return to me, God says, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. We see the cry here of God. To a wayward people, return to me. Here God lays out a road map to reconciliation. It's a roadmap to reconciliation for any wayward people. First of all, he says, notice, where does the reconciliation begin? Is it on God's end or is it on our end? It's on our end, right? Notice he says, return to me. That is, we, they, must repent and begin pursuing obedience to God again. And when that happens, then what does God promise? Then I, he says, will return to you. That is, he will be eager to forgive. He will restore our relationship. He will pour out covenant blessings upon us. And that leads us to a third lesson for the morning. See, reconciliation for Christians. Reconciliation begins with Repentance, Our broken relationship, when we turn our back from God and we walk away with him, how are we to be reconciled? It begins with repentance, which literally means turning around, right? We turn around and we go back towards God. James, I think, gives us very... Clear words for Christians who are in rebellion in the New Testament. Notice what James says come, come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Verse 9 Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning, and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will lift you up. See, both here in James and in the book of Malachi, we the onus, right? The, the responsibility is laid on the, rebe- the rebellious people, us. We who have turned our backs on God. Friends, if you, are, if you are running from God, if there's an area of life that you have disobeyed and you know it and you are okay with that, you are walking away from God and you are a Christian, friends, just know that God is waiting for you. He's longing for you. He can't wait for you to make the first move to turn back to him. He's eagerly awaiting for you to stop going on the path that you have taken, to turn around and to start walking back. I love the parable that Jesus gives in Luke 15 to show us how does God respond when his people are wayward? What is his posture towards us? And when we turn around, how does he respond? You're probably familiar with it, the parable of the prodigal son. Notice in Luke 15, verse 20. So he got up, And went to his father, that is the prodigal. So he made the first step. He turned around. He's going back to his father, who's a figure of God. But while he was still a long way off, his father, who's a picture of God, saw him and was filled with anger for him. Is that what it says? No. Was filled with animus. No. Was filled with what? Compassion. Was filled with compassion for him. He sat there and waited for his son to gravel at his feet. Is that what the text says? No. What does it say? He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Oh, believer and beloved, God waits for us. And at the first glimpse of our return upon the horizon, he doesn't just sit there waiting for us to come beg. Oh, no, he runs. Friends, he runs to us because he loves our relationship with him. As God did with his wayward people so many years ago, he says to you and I, return to me, and I will return to to you. Come near to me, and I will come near to you. Well, how do the people respond? See, God has said, just turn around, just turn around, come back. Oh, but they they give a cynical cross-examination. Notice the tail end of verse 7. But you ask, Malachi says, putting words in the people's mouth, but you ask, O Israel, how are we to return? Well, in short, this is what they're saying. Why do we need to return to you, God? We've never turned away from you in the first place. So this is what the people of God were doing. They were walking away from God. And God says, come back, come back, come back. And they say, I'm not walking away from you. I don't have my back turned to you. And they clearly did, right? They cynically cross-examine his charge. Well, God obliges. He gives a second charge in verse 8. Notice, it's the charge more specific as to how they had turned their backs on him. Verse 8. The second charge is they had robbed God. <clears throat> the text reads this way. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me So the second charge from God to his people is that they were robbing him and it's it's laid out in a, the form of a, a rhetorical question right it's as if God is saying through Malachi how ridiculous it is to ever think that a mere mortal could rob from an infinitely powerful and glorious God it's just ridiculous to think that but not only that how ridiculous it is to think that human beings could rob God and then think that they are getting away with it, right? God says they were both robbing him and like the stupid thieves that we saw earlier, they actually thought that they could get away with robbing God. This phrase, yet you rob me, in Hebrew, it's not God is not just saying to his people, yet you have robbed me once. You've you've robbed me once. No, it's a continual tense that is God is saying to you you are robbing me now. And you have been robbing me week after week, month after month, year after year, and decade after decade. You always do this, is kind of the idea. It was not a one time act. Um, I don't know if you've ever, uh, stolen anything before. I'm not asking for confession time here or anything like that. Um, but I remember very specifically being involved in a robbery. And here's how the story goes. When I was in junior high, I uh, had uh, some guys approach me in my grade, and they weren't friends, we were not even acquaintances. So my, uh, my mind should have, all, the alarm should have gone off. And they said, hey, uh, we want to go to the candy store and uh, buy some candy. Hey, do you want to go? I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> sure, why not? Uh, but they weren't going to the regular candy store. See, there was a gentleman in our small town, and he was an elderly gentleman, gentleman and his eyes were failing. And he had a mom and pop candy store in his house. And, uh, just a little, little room, right, with candy and soda pop that he would sell to the, to the local kids. Um, and, uh, little did I know I was being set up. So we went to the, the store and I, I just, ha, ha you know, innocent me, here I go. And, and I pick up some candy, I'm like, ah, oh, Snickers, that's great, or whatever it was. And I went to, up to the gentleman to pay for, Uh, my candy. And as I was paying for my candy, I came to the realization that the guys that I had been with behind me were doing stuff. See, they were taking the opportunity while I was paying for my candy to rob this almost blind man, sticking candy in their pockets left and right. And after I got done, I walked out of the store, and we walked out together, and I had paid for my candy, and they had not. And I told them, I would never do that again. And they said, that's okay. We'll get somebody else to come tomorrow. Because they were continuously, always robbing this guy. Friends, that's what God's people were doing. They were always robbing God. So how were they doing that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the people of God wanted to know how they were doing it. So notice verse 8. There's a second cross-examination. They want to know how how they were robbing God. But you ask, Malachi says, how are we robbing you? See, they wanted to know. You're accusing us of robbing you? How could that be? See, they couldn't think of a way that they were robbing God. So once again, God clearly spells it out for them in no uncertain terms. He gives a third charge at the tail end of verse 8 and the consequence of that charge in verse 9. Notice, God answers them. But you ask, How are we robbing you? And here's God's response. In tithes and offerings. That's the response. In tithes and in offerings. And here's the curse. You are, or or the consequence, you are under a curse, God says, your whole nation. Why? Because you are robbing me. So how is it that they were robbing God? Well, God clearly tells them that they were robbing him in tithes and in offering. And what he means is that they were not giving them to him. They were not faithfully, as they were commanded, giving him both tithes and offering. And in that way, they were robbing him, which kind of leads us down a a bit of a rabbit trail. Would you go down the rabbit trail with me just for a second? What exactly is a tithe? What is a tithe? You maybe have heard it used in church or in Sunday school or on the radio, but I think, generally speaking, most Christians are kind of ignorant as to what exactly a tithe was in the Old Testament. So very quickly, let me share with you what it was. Um, in, early in the Bible, we see the example of the tithe. Uh, both uh, early on, we see Abraham giving a tithe, which literally means a tenth, to the king Melchizedek in Genesis 14. We see Jacob promising God, because God had protected him, to give God a tenth of his possessions, his livestock, his produce, whatever they had. And so generally speaking, a tithe is the giving of a tenth of whatever we own or whatever we receive, not own, but whatever we receive of income to back to God as a response for some blessing that he's given us. But it's important to know. That in these two early examples, both in Genesis and uh, both of them in Genesis, this was not commanded. So, Abraham wasn't commanded to give a tithe to Melchizedek, and Jacob was not commanded by God to give a tithe. It was just free will. They were doing it out of their gratitude to God. However, once Mount Sinai occurred and God gave the law to his covenant people, we see that a tithe was no longer uh, free will, but it was mandatory. It was a part of the covenant of God. And when you look in the Old Testament, there are three tithes. Not just one, not just two, three. Three required tithes. And it's important that we understand what they were for. First of all, a tithe was given by the people to support the Levites. Number one to support the Levites and their livelihood as they worked in the temple. We see that in Leviticus chapter 27. Now, who were the Levites? They were the people who worked alongside the priests in the temple work, right? So that's what they did. And so the people of Israel would give a tenth, a tithe, of that year's income to support the Levites. Now, what did the Levites do? Well, the Bible tells us that the Levites were then commanded to take a tenth of that, so a tithe of a tithe, and give it to the priests. Right? And so the tithe initially was God's way to support the people that were leading in worship and in sacrifice. You could say the spiritual leaders of the people. That was the first tithe. But there was a second. A second tithe was commanded and required during the three annual pilgrimages. Remember, the males of Israel were required to go to the temple or the tabernacle three times a year for worship, right? And there was a required tithe for that. So they would take an additional 10%, and it was kind of like a pilgrimage budget. They were to use it to, to supply their needs on the way, and then when they got to the temple, they were to buy things in order to worship the Lord. We see that in Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 14. So that's a second tithe. But there's a third, right? A third tithe, and it was, a tr- um, it was to be given every third year. So it wasn't annual Every third year, the people were to give a tithe in order to support those who were needy, like the Levites, like the strangers in the land, or foreigners, widows in the land, and orphans. We see that in Deuteronomy 14. So theoretically, on that third year, there were three required tithes of God's people. You can do the math, 30%, right? Not every year, but every third year. So here's why this matters. The thrust of God's charge through Malachi to his people related to the first. God is charging his people for failing to do the first. That is, for failing to give both the Levites and the priests the tithe that would support their living. To support the anointed spiritual leadership of Israel. They were withholding them. And so God says, you are robbing me of tithes and of offerings. But, but why were they withholding them? Why, why was it robbery for them to withhold that? Yes, God had commanded it, but why was it robbery? Well, God makes it very clear in Leviticus 25. He says, I own every inch of property in Israel. So you, you may be gleaning from the produce of the land and the livestock, yeah, you, may, you own it in a sense, but, but I really own it. It's mine. And so when the people failed to give back to God a portion of what he had commanded, what were they doing? They were robbing. They were stealing from God. Because it wasn't theirs to begin with, was it? It wasn't. You know, I heard a story of a father, a loving father, who wanted to bless his son, a little five-year-old boy. And so he said, son, you did great on your homework. I'm going to take you to McDonald's and get you some french fries. Because it was the son's favorite. And so the son goes and he orders the biggest, baddest McDonald's french fries that you can get, right? Jumbo size or whatever it's called. Heart attack on a plate, right? Whatever. And uh, his son starts to eat them. And the father is like, that looks pretty good. I, I'd like to have one or two. So he, he reaches over to grab a french fry. And the little boy slaps him on the hand. He reaches over again, slaps him on the hand. And the father says, son, why are you, can I have a french fry? He says, no, they're mine. And the dad said, son, who bought that for you? Who gave that to you? Well, of course it was him. See, that's what God's people were doing. God was saying, can I, can I have a few of, of the french fries that I bought for you? I just want a few. And they were slapping his hand friends, can we do that too? Might we be guilty of doing that as well? See, what was happening, Nehemiah tells us the result. See, God's people were failing to support the spiritual leadership in Israel, and so what were the Levites having to do? Well, Nehemiah tells us, which is the same time period, right? They were contemporaries. Nehemiah tells us in chapter 13, verse 10, we'll notice, I also learned, says Nehemiah, that the portions assigned to the Levites, that's what we're talking about, had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. What does that mean? They're not being supported by the people of God, so they go back to work. And as a result, Nehemiah tells us that the leadership of Israel in the service of the temple failed. Because the people were failing to support them. This charge comes with a consequence in verse 9. God says, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. See, in Deuteronomy 28, the basic initial covenant God made with his people, God told them, one of the possible curses I'm going to give to you if you don't obey me like in withholding a tithe, for instance, is that there would be locusts and the locusts would come and destroy the crops. And guess what was happening in Malachi's day? According to verse 11, chapter 3. That's exactly what was happening. There were locusts. There was a curse. God says, you're not obeying me, so I'm giving you what I told you I would give you. One commentator by the name of hits he hits it right on the head in this section. He writes this. He says, the issue is not tithing. The issue is not tithing, but apostasy. Judah is charged here with abandoning the God who had chosen and blessed them and turning away from the statutes he had given them to test their loyalty, that of tithing, and to mark the path of a life that would be blessed by him. He goes on to say, by retaining, heres this is important, by retaining for themselves the tithes and other offerings they owe to God, the people showed their idolatrous hearts in placing themselves before God. And they showed their calloused hearts in leaving the Levites and the landless poor to defend for themselves. That is the point. And it leads us to a, a fourth and final lesson. We are to generously support those who are in service to the Lord. As Malachi speaks about the tithe, that is what he is talking about, right? While we are under a different covenant than the one that Malachi wrote to, the New Testament undergirds and affirms and even uses similar language than the Old Testament to talk about and affirm the purpose of the Old Testament tithe, at least the first what was the purpose of the first Old Testament tithe? It was to support the spiritual leadership in their service to God and the people of God. The New Testament reiterates this. Let me just share a few verses. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 says this. Don't you know, Paul says, that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? Notice the Old Testament image. He's talking about Levites and priests here, how they are provided for in what they do. Verse 14, he applies it to the church. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. He is drawing an exact parallel, isn't he? us. Another verse, Galatians 6, 6, nevertheless, Paul says, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Also, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 and 18, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. I think that refers to financial honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And then he supports it from the Old Testament. For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. And the worker is worthy of his wages. And so just as the Old Covenant was designed, the New Covenant is designed in such a way that the people of God support the spiritual leadership of God. But, but, just as Israel robbed God by not doing this, you and I today can rob God as well. If We refuse to generously support his purposes, his church, and his servants. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we robbing God? Are we robbing God by not giving generously, as generously as you can? Instead, choosing to withhold what God has asked of you, whatever percentage that might be. It may be two, it may be 20. I don't know. But whatever it is to raise your standard of living rather than your standard of giving. Well, the dispute closes in verses 10 through 12 with a challenge. Notice the challenge in verse 10. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. There was a a room in the temple that was literally a storehouse where these tithes and offerings would be kept. That there may be food in my house, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be any room enough to store it. Verse 11, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. And then he closes in verse 12. He says, then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, depending upon who you listen to and whose podcasts you tune into, and which TV station you watch, you might have heard preachers preach this verse, like I'm preaching it today, and you might hear them say something radically different than what I am saying. See, we must take these verses, specifically these three verses, in light of God's covenant blessings that he promised on his old covenant people for their obedience. See, Deuteronomy 28 makes it clear. If you obey me, I'll bless you in these specific ways. If you disobey me, I will curse you, so to speak, in these specific ways. In the ways that we see God promising his blessing upon his people that we see here, right? There will be rain. The pests won't destroy your your crops. All the nations will call you blessed. You will have more than enough. God is simply reiterating his promises to his people. He's saying, if you turn in this manner and you start obeying me, then I will start fulfilling my promises to you. God is merely saying, if you obey me like I told you to in the area of tithing, then I will bless you like I told you I would. See, friends, let's not be, let's not be deceived. God is not promising Israel or us some prosperity gospel here, that if we would simply give to him, that he would give back to us a larger percentage in return. Friends, that is a doctrine of demons. That's not from the Bible. But they use the scripture to make you think that it is. No, that's not what is going on. This, this was not God telling Israel or us. God is not telling his covenant people, new or old, here's how you can manipulate me to get more money. That's not what God is doing. God is not in that business. It's not like God were a heavenly ATM. And it's not like this verse is saying, hey, listen, if, uh, uh, you, know, if, you, if you put in a $20 bill, I'm going to spit out 100 But that's exactly what many, many people erroneously teach from this verse. God is simply telling his people, Test my covenant faithfulness. I will keep my promises. I will give you the promises that I have laid out for you. And so, friends, brothers, and sisters, maybe you find yourself in a similar place today like the covenant people of old in Malachi's day. They needed to repent. Specifically, They needed to repent in how they handled the money that God had entrusted to them. Friends, will you follow Malachi's advice? Will you listen to God? God is telling us today through Malachi, return return to me, and I will return to you. And just see what blessings of a restored relationship with me might bring about. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be the Lord of our hearts, the Lord of our minds, the Lord of our wills, and even, yes, the Lord of our wallets, the Lord of our bank accounts. Just as everything that you gave the people of Israel, the cattle and the sheep and the bulls and the the crops, the produce of the land, that it, it was all yours. Father, everything you give us, everything we have, it's from you. And so you ask that we return a percentage of that, whatever we determine in our hearts, to give back to you to support your church, to support your leadership. And so, Father, work in us in this way. We are all guilty of using our money to further our standard of living rather than our standard of giving. So may we be open to your leading in this area. We do not want to rob you. So make us generous, we pray, in your name, that you may pour out your covenant blessings upon us, whether physical or spiritual or emotional, whatever that may be. We anticipate that in the name of Jesus and all God's people said together. Amen. Amen.